0: I'm Kate Daniels. Really, what could be more important than living our life, fulfilling our life's purpose? If that sounds daunting, in meeting Susie Rowe, we'll get a sense of just how that unfolded for her, and from that, we may become more in tune, more alert to our surroundings in finding our own life's purpose. So let's meet Susie Rowe now. Susie Rowe, good morning, and so many thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. This is so fascinating. Your, well, you call it a memoir of Africa, and certainly it's that. And of course, added into it is is your own earlier life. And I think that that's so important to give us a, a good understanding of who you are and how you've come to this work, which you describe in My Wild and Precious Life. And that is the Precious Project in Tanzania. But for what you are doing, what
1: would you say is
0: the most important message you'd want to convey to us this morning?
1: That it's never too late to live a life of purpose. It's never too late to have adventures and to stretch yourself. And that we know from the literature that people who have a deeply embedded sense of purpose live longer and live better. So this was my I guess, my third chapter in life, and it has been the most deeply rewarding.
0: And it's always been your focus, though, right from a young age, really. In university, you were doing that.
1: Well, I've always been really interested in what makes people tick and what the differences are culturally and cross-culturally, and I've always been eager to do something that helps others, as sappy as that sounds. Um so this piece of my life, the work in Africa, took that desire to help to some further length and also gave me the gift of really learning deeply about other cultures and other ways of life. And. It was
0: Africa, or you've chosen Africa as the focus. Would you say largely because you had made um, a trip there earlier this century uh, with your son and and saw just the way people live? And what about how people live? And and the way their life was so, I would say, so challenging, so so scrappy.
1: Yes. Well, when my son turned 16... I thought, let's do something to stretch his horizons, and to have an adventure, but not go as a tourist. So he and I went, of all places, to Zimbabwe, which at that point in time still is, is kind of falling apart with Mugabe and just the inflation rate that made everything impossible. But I allowed my son to pick the assignment, and so we went to work with baby lions. Now, what we didn't know was the babies in the brochure looked really cute, but we were with lion cubs that were easily two or three hundred pounds. So that was quite an adventure. And I fell in love with the Africans. I fell in love with, I got the bug at that point. And then I decided I wanted to return, but to return and use some of my skills as a psychologist, I didn't want to scoop poop the next time. So... I um, approached Ed Wood, who was the then CEO of the Clinton Foundation Health Access Initiative, and they were working in 75 countries at the time. Um, But I said, I'd like to volunteer to go to Africa. And he said, how soon can you leave? (laughs) (laughs) He wanted to send me to Ethiopia. And so I said, well, I, I guess I need a few shots first. And then off I went to Ethiopia. And the story of my arrival there is kind of classic. I arrive in the airport. It's the middle of the night. I don't have any idea what the time is in my body because I've been traveling for 18 hours. And I don't see anybody greeting me. I don't see a sign. I just see crowds of people, none of them white, of course, just me. So finally a guy comes up to me. He says, Susie. Sussy, actually more sussy. And he turns out he's the driver for the Clinton Foundation. I wondered to myself, how did he pick me out? And then I thought, well, how many other blonde <laughs> ladies are there hanging around? <laughs> True. <laughs> he takes us out to his cab, and I notice that the gas tank is stuffed with a garbage bag, and the car looks totally beat up. I get in the car. There's no dashboard. There's certainly no seat belts. And when we're driving, periodically, the passenger door just swings open. And <laughs> Ficado was the driver. He would just reach across me and shut the door. And then when the card began to fill with fumes, I said, Ficado, can I open my window a bit? He hands, he unscrews his ha- door handle and hands it to me so I can unscrew my door handle. That was my introduction to Addis Ababa. <laughs>
0: And did you feel, Susie, oh, my gosh, maybe I just need to turn around and get on the plane and go home?
1: Oh, totally. I thought, what was I thinking? (laughs) But the Ethiopians at the Clinton Foundation were marvelous. They're still my friends. There's a a gentleness and a sweetness to them. And they made me feel so welcome that even though I was on a steep learning curve— they gave me a lot of slack. What
0: an incredible entry into this world. And as I was saying, maybe you want to get on the plane and go home, but yet it wasn't just the commitment of you said that you would be there and you would do this. There was something deeper pulling you to be there, wasn't there?
1: Well, I had met Africans in Zimbabwe and I had been drawn to them. There's a, there's a warmth and an authenticity to the connections. And Ed Wood assured me that was also the case in Ethiopia. And they had crushing health issues to deal with. I mean, much more important than to me than some of the things I had been working on with my clients in the U.S. People's lives were at stake. And what we were doing was making a difference. So that pull to do something adventuresome and that pull to do something to make a difference has always been there for me. And
0: so we kind of fast forward a bit, but not a lot, to your knowing that you really wanted to be there and having then that awareness of what would keep you and rooted in Africa in the sense of having this project that you have this? So tell us how this came about.
1: I started in Africa in 07 um, and worked for the Clinton Foundation for the next five years off and on. I didn't live there. I would bounce back and forth in these trips that were pretty exhausting, 16 hours of travel at a minimum. But the more I... Worked, And the more I visited other countries, um, the more I missed my husband, who was at home keeping the home fires burning. And I also began to get a little tired trying to learn a different African language each visit, each country. And I began to say to myself, what if, what if we could find a smaller project in Tanzania that would need us and use us where... Actually, we could stay put and see what noodles stick on the wall, you know. So um, we targeted Tanzania, and in a remarkable, almost spooky kind of level of uh, synchronicity, we stayed in a lodge, and within the first 12 hours of staying there, we went on what they called a cultural walking tour. Now, I don't usually like those because I like to go out on my own, but I knew we'd get lost in the warren of footpaths there. And we literally stumbled on this tiny orphanage. It was impossibly grim. And our guide said, this is a new orphanage for AIDS orphans. And, and we said, how is that possible? Can we go inside and see it? And so inside this cement bunker were two rooms, two rooms empty except for nine kids, two bunk beds, no toys, no books, no blankets, nothing, nothing, except for the kids bouncing around on the bottom bunk of one of the bunks. And we were just stunned. I couldn't believe that these kids were as animated as they were, and living under such dire circumstances. There was no running water, there there was really no nothing. And when we contacted William Modest, who is a wonderful last name and very apt, he and his wife had left their teaching jobs to actually try and run this orphanage, but all they had for funds were periodic handouts from the local church. And that meant a bag of maize every so often but nothing like a predictable meal plan. So we said we'd like to help. We looked at each other and we said, it doesn't seem like we need to look a lot further for a place where we can help. So we began shopping for groceries and shopping for beds. And I went home and I hit up everybody in my family for donations. (laughs) And we grew the thing. We never would have imagined doing this. We, We grew the thing from nine kids to 350 today and now we have a brand new home we have a brand new we have a beautiful primary school we have wonderful teaching staff and our kids are doing amazingly well so we have to pinch ourselves about that this has happened so rapidly
0: in less than a decade yeah and this is the precious project
1: exactly It's the Precious Project, and you can go online and see the pictures of the kids, PreciousProject.org. You can see our progression, which um, stuns everyone, (laughs) including us.
0: When that kind of thing, when this happens in this way, doesn't it feel that this was meant to be, I found the reason for being, I found the purpose, and it is evolving because it was meant to be?
1: Exactly. I've had that sense. I mean, I, I was open to finding something. I was clearly looking for a project in Africa. But when this dropped in our lap that fast, and there's another point of serendipity. That night at the hotel, we met a couple from Chicago, and they were running an NGO, and they generously offered to pull the us under their wing so that we could fundraise legally. Otherwise, we never would have been able to get that much money to, to start building and so forth. So we've since parted ways because we went in different directions, but they gave us the jump start that night. Isn't that amazing?
0: Doesn't that then just really like underscore it that this really is meant to be? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, so incredible. And we hear stories, maybe not so much anymore, but about the AIDS orphans and really how their life basically is is so grim. No one wants to be around them. They're basically, they've been ostracized. Obviously, this is not the case now.
1: Well, we've dipped in and saved a small percentage of the population. I mean the good thing is that if you can withstand the stigma you can live with AIDS for the rest of your life and inst- if you stay on the medication the problem is that being HIV positive is incredibly stigmatizing and a lot of people don't want others to know that they're taking the medication and the medications are not fun you're supposed to eat twice as much and these people were subsistence farmers living on a buck 25 a day So it's hard, and the kids whose families are wiped out often end up as street kids, and their situations are very, very grim. Our kids would have ended up that way had we not taken them under our wing. And it
0: seems even in the orphanage, because it was just this concrete cell, two concrete cells, uh, that there wasn't really going to be sufficient support for them to have a good foundation for the future.
1: Exactly right, because the, their housing was so impossibly grim. And at that point, they were going to public schools in the village. Now, public schools in Tanzania are very, very underfunded. So you might have a classroom of 80 to 90 children with one teacher and the kids learn through rote repetition, and there's a lot of corporal punishment. The kids get caned if they don't know the answers to the question. So one of our kids who, if he were in the U.S., probably would have been put on Ritalin. He was very hyperactive. Instead, he, he would come home from school just desolate because he had been shamed and caned. So our next job after we got them some more a little bit more livable situation at their current home was to get them out of the public school and into a school where corporal punishment was prohibited, and perhaps there would be a little bit more learning going on. Over the years and several schools, we realized that the corporal punishment hadn't quite gone away and that the kids were still getting a marginal education. You know, the way to, here's our computer lesson. Let's draw it on the blackboard. This is a computer. Spell computer. Okay, this is a mouse. Can you spell mouse? That was the extent of it. So we're so proud and lucky that we have really technically savvy volunteers who set up our website and set the kids up learning on iPads, Khan Academy materials. We're the only elementary school that we know of that's doing this with kids. So our kids are are really doing well now. They've been through a lot.
0: Considering what they've been through and being orphans, that having this potential of this great education is really going to give them that foundation for a good future.
1: Exactly right. We know that most of the kids that we have taken on in the school and in the home would not have seen the inside of a school had it not been for the project. And now some of them are really smart. A lot of them, are, I mean, they're very bright. And once you give, and it's like watering a plant and looking, look at it, it's shooting up. These kids are amazing. Now we're teaching them everything in English right from nursery school on up. So, English is important language of commerce. And now we're hoping one day that we can build a secondary school. Right now, we're having to send our graduates, and they're just a few at this point, to local private schools, some of which are not frankly, up to the standards we'd like to see.
0: And so, to realize this dream of a secondary school, what does that mean?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we first bought 13 acres 20 minutes away, and we're farming that land now so that we can reduce our food expenses, which are soaring because of climate change. And that plot of land is designated for a secondary school, which will necessitate, on our part, just massive fundraising, not just to build it, I think we can get it built, but to operate it, and to operate it well. So,
0: So, this is where all of us can participate in making this happen, because yes, this is one school, but as this begins, and it begins to set a footprint, we can see that it can grow and really encompass so many more, right?
1: Right, right, and many people come to visit us to see what we're doing, and we're proud to show them. It's not rocket science, but it's very different from the norm in Tanzania. The other thing is that we're giving girls a chance. Only 20% of Tanzanian girls finish secondary school, 20%. And we also, this stunning statistic is that Tanzanian adolescent girls have the highest fertility rate in the world. So if you're in a public school, the new president has just announced an old regulation, which he's putting back into play, that a school can, at the whim of the headmaster, headmistress, have all the teenage girls tested for pregnancy. And if they test positive, they are expelled from school that day and forever. Wow. Wow, yeah. Isn't that, that's just a stunning. Oh, it's,
0: it's, it's mind-boggling.
1: It's mind-boggling. It absolutely is. And many of these girls are not pregnant from consensual sex. Let me be clear. There's such a large percentage of girls whose first induction into sex is forced. So all the worse. Oh, all the worse.
0: Oh, that. Oh, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's truly, yes, it is. And we know that, well, aside from the fact that the girls need an education, but educating the young women is really the only way to really guarantee right. the future.
1: Right. Right. Yes. And once we get these gals in school, they love it. They thrive. Um, and they're very bright. I'm a psychologist by training, and so I'm looking out at these kids, and I know some of their early history of abuse and neglect, and ordinarily you'd see more signs of mental health issues as a result. Um, In a couple of cases we have seen that, but in the majority of cases our kids demonstrate a level of resilience that blows my mind. And we know most of our kids can't live with us because we had to make a choice. Were we going to run a huge orphanage or were we going to run a big school? And we thought really at the end of the day, what was the greater gift for the kids? It was the education. So we only have 21 in the home now, and but we have 60 in a day student dorm situation. So there are a lot of tough choices that we've made all along, but the good part is that we've made them totally in tandem with William Modest and his wife, Sarah. So this is really their, we deeply respect their traditions, their decision-making, and their culture. They teach us. We teach them about how to run a school. My husband used to be a school principal, but they teach us all the rest.
0: And keeping the culture intact.
1: Exactly, yes. exactly. So this is, again,
0: getting to the point of how we can also be participants because we can see how there's been this incredible success already, but it needs to keep building and moving to the secondary school. So we can help to support this, can we not?
1: Absolutely. If you go on the website, there's a, a place where you can donate. And we would be deeply appreciative of any kind of donation. So it's pretty easy to do. You just push the donate button.
0: At the website, which is?
1: Which is smallcasepreciousproject.org. And to underscore that, because this
0: story is just so captivating, so important and inspirational, proceeds from... My Wild and Precious Life, a portion of that goes to supporting the project, correct?
1: Correct. Absolutely.
0: So this book, which is just freshly out and really such an intriguing story, uh, we can get at any of our favorite book sources,
1: right, Susie? Exactly. Exactly. Easiest is maybe Amazon, but you can get it anywhere.
0: Yes. And look to your favorite bookstore, and if they don't have yes. it, let them know, and they can order it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So really, we owe it to ourselves, because this kind of work, where we are supporting the education and moving toward the future with these kids who are so vulnerable, but obviously just so desirous and capable of learning, Right. we need to do our part.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. We deeply appreciate any help that people are moved to offer. And what we've experienced is that there ends up being kind of a cohort of donors and partners who follow us and celebrate with us when there's a new achievement. So I think it is satisfying for them as well. They get our newsletter and they see what's happening because there's always stuff happening. It's pretty exciting. (laughs)
0: Life, never a dull moment.
1: Exactly.
0: And I think what we will discover, which is how we began this, Susie, you're saying how finding that life of purpose is something that each of us is able to find. Who knows what we might discover, be it this right. project it or. have to
1: be in Africa for sure. You're right.
0: But uh, even supporting it might be part of how we find ourselves involved in our life of purpose. Right. Right. Exactly. So is your son involved with the project as well?
1: He's not, but um, we hope he will, but it'll need to be on his own timetable.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Well, just as for any of us, to discover what we're going to do, we can't... Make Can't anyone force
1: our kids to take over the family business?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly that kind of thing. But it's it certainly is giving him a model, and he certainly thrived when he was in Africa on that first did. year, right? He certainly did. So that in itself is pretty incredible. And one of the the big things that's happening with the school, and it is an issue all over Africa, is water. Certainly in Africa, it's been such an issue where it could take a person a whole day just to have the water that they need for that day.
1: Right, and that water may be contaminated unless you are able to boil and filter, which is what Gil and I do obsessionally. And even so, there are waterborne bacteria that usually get us once or twice every time we go. So it's the access to water. And then it's the water contamination. It's a big problem.
0: And so you have a well on the property, right?
1: Exactly right. We have a well, and then we have these huge filters. That The water's been tested from the borehole, and it's good water. But then we further filter it for the kids to drink. And we don't have any kids with any intestinal bugs as a result. So
0: these varied aspects of what it takes to, to have the school, to have the orphanage, to help these really vulnerable young people get that good foundation. And, mm-hmm. and we just, you know, are waiting to see the leaders that they will become in their uh-huh. own country, right?
1: Right. We are too. We, we hope for that. And we see signs of it. There are several kids who will really be leaders But they're all there, as my dad used to say, they're all squared away. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Which is great, because they're getting this foundation at this formative time, so it is going to serve them for life.
1: Exactly right. And William and Sarah are not their custodians. William and Sarah are their parents. They call them mother and father. And then, this is really sweet, the, the mamas... That's how we refer to women who care for kids, the mamas. The mamas in the home, there's one sleeping with the kids every night, and she has a sizable bed, but it's not huge, and she has a child on either side of her who sleep with her every night. And when new children come into the home, the big kids take the new child under their wing and don't let them sleep alone because kids in Tanzania are not used to sleeping alone. They're used to sleeping like puppies in a box. So our kids take care of the newcomers, and uh, they don't let them sleep on the upper bunk until they're ready. And So there's this deeply loving wraparound care that they get that is just extraordinary, and it's very African. It's very sweet.
0: And so there again is maintaining the culture and not imposing something different, but making them really be at home in their home.
1: Exactly right. Right. Exactly right.
0: Well, this is such incredibly important work. And Susie Rowe, I'm so grateful that you've written A Memoir of Africa, My Wild and Precious Life. And I am so grateful for the time that you've taken this morning to share this, at least some of the story with us.
1: Wonderful. It really has been a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Thank you. Now we take a moment for Sunday morning shout out, and that's to Washington Outdoor Women. This is connecting to nature through traditional outdoor skills. Washington Outdoor Women is an outdoor skills education program by women for women. Since 1998, Washington Outdoor Women has been reconnecting women with Washington's wilderness through skill-building workshops and classes such as archery, freshwater and fly fishing, backpacking, waterfowling, shotgun, map and compass, survival skills, Dutch oven cooking, outdoor photography, and so much more. Match your potential with opportunity. You can check out their workshop schedule and register online at http://washingtonoutdoorwomen.org. Backslash backslash Washington Outdoor Women, wow, W-O-W, is an educational outreach program of the Washington Wildlife Federation and is dedicated to teaching women and girls outdoor skills and natural resource stewardship. If you would like further information, please call Jen Sorowitz at four two five seven eight five thirty five fifty five or email Jens at Washington dot org. Do contact Washington Outdoor Women.